When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Behind every complaint is a commitment. Think about it. If someone has had the courage to put their hand up and go to their boss or make a phone call to complain, it's because of something they feel strongly about. Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Welcome to the show. As we get going today, I, I wanna thank you so much for helping us become one of the top leadership podcasts in the world. So appreciate you sharing, leaving reviews, and again, ask if there is a leader in your life, if there's one episode that would help them, what was your favorite episode? Make sure and share that with them and let's pay it forward and, and spread the word. Thanks again, appreciate you being here. So as we get going, have you ever thought about the culmination of your leadership journey? Whether you're a team leader, a vice president or the CEO, you're ultimately going to do the same thing as every other leader. You'll leave the role you're in and you're gonna hand over that responsibility to someone else. Our guest today has literally written the book. He's not just been thinking about it, he has written the book on what this means and how to do it skillfully, gracefully, and he's got some powerful tools and approaches to help you with that. His name, Peter Docker. He's, Peter's got 25 years as a Royal Air Force senior officer. He's been a force commander during combat flying operations, has seen service around the globe. His career has spanned from professional pilot to leading an aviation training and standards organization, teaching postgrads at the UK's Defense College, even flying the British Prime Minister around the world. He's led multi-billion dollar international procurement projects and served as a crisis manager and former international negotiator for the UK government. As a keynote speaker and facilitator, Peter presents around the world, offers workshops, custom leadership programs, and you might know Peter, you might know this little book that he and a guy named Simon Sinek wrote a while back called Find Your Why, a practical guide for discovering purpose for you and your team that he wrote with Simon Sinek and David Mead. And his latest book, Leading from the Jump Seat, delivers the message that leadership's about lifting people up and giving them the space they need so that when the time is right, they can take the lead. And that's what brings Peter to us today. Peter Docker, welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. David, it's a delight to be on your show. Thank you so much for having me. It is my delight. I just loved this book, and there's just so much good content that I want to draw out for everyone. But I, Peter, you have such a storied career. You have done amazing things. And I would like you to take us back as early as you can to your very first memory of yourself as a leader. Oh, good heavens. That's a really interesting question, David, because I don't think there was ever a moment where I thought, oh, I'm a leader. You know, most of us just go about our business. Um, and it's only perhaps later on when we've had a moment to reflect that we realize, hey, 
there's people following me here. <laughs> What's going on, you know? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's why it's such an interesting question. I would focus on when I started to lead myself. Because, you know, we, we talk about leading others a lot, and that's a lot about what the show is, is focused on. But I think one of the biggest challenges we all have starts with a person in the mirror learning how to lead yourself. And that's, um, well, I speak for myself, is a lifelong journey, you know? And I, I think one of the earliest things, the, the clues are in the choices that we make. There's so many clues in the choices that we make in life. And for me, some of the, the choices I made in my late teens started to, to point to leading myself, you know, where you are stepping into the unknown consciously and deciding to take one route instead of another. And for me, perhaps that's when I chose to go to university to study a double degree in two subjects about which I had no background or knowledge whatsoever. Uh, those were computer science, computing and electronic engineering. This is back in 1980, 81, you know, I'm, I'm that old. Um, but I, I chose to do those subjects against advice from a lot of people because they said, well, follow a course that you have at least some background in, you know, um, but no, I wanted to take these subjects and I finally got a college university to accept me. I started on that course, but the reason for going after those subjects was because at the end of it, I thought I'd be able to get a really well-paid job. Now, it wasn't about the money. It was what I could do with that money. And at the time of me going to university, both my parents had lost their jobs. Mm. Um, we were very hard up, had a challenge putting food on the table. And I didn't want to be a burden to my parents. Uh, and equally, I wanted to be in a position later to support them and make sure they're okay. So I, I guess that was one of the big moments in my life, looking back, where I started to lead. I started to make choices where others were thinking, mm, not sure I'd do that if I were you, um, but it just felt like the right thing to do. And then a number of other events unfolded as well that brought me to where I am now. But I, I, I think I, some of our first leadership has to be with regards to leading ourselves. Leading ourselves. And I, I appreciate as well what you're saying about the self-reflection that frequently, even if it's a matter of leading ourselves. Or leading others that we're not always aware of that until we look back and say oh that's what was happening absolutely yeah um and i think you know in your very kind introduction you, you reeled off all of these things that i've done um to me a lot of it is well first of all i find it difficult to believe i did all those things <laughs> but the value of it is for me the opportunity to reflect and join the dots and to figure out uh, when it went right, the reason it went well, uh, when it didn't go quite as planned, you know, what, what happened there. Also to reflect on the Chinese proverb of good luck, bad luck, who knows, you know, because at times in my life where things didn't go to plan, um, I thought it was oh, end of the world or the equivalent, you know, over dramatizing there, but actually it, it turned out well. Um, so, yeah, all these experiences I've had, um, what it's given me or what I have now is the opportunity to reflect. And of course, 
working around the world uh, as I have, I've visited 93 countries and worked in pretty much every industry we can imagine with some great leaders and some pretty poor ones too. Again, it's enabled me to, to join the dots and to figure things out and hopefully put it in language and distinctions in language that others can immediately understand and then start to use themselves. Well, I can vouch for that. And those 93 countries you're talking with us today from, you said, just outside Oxford in, in the UK. Is that right? That's right. Yes. The University City of Oxford. Fantastic. You know, as you're, you're talking about connecting the dots and the learning, uh, and, and we're not even into the book yet, but you just mentioned this. And I think it, maybe it's the, uh, the squadron leader, the, the, the uh, experience you have there about looking back and, and yeah. most business leaders know, yes, I need to evaluate what happened in a project, but there's some elements that you just mentioned that I think are important to call out. And that is that, are we evaluating our success and identifying what led to it or was it luck or do we not know? Can we know? And taking time to reflect on that, what can we learn, not just from the things that didn't go as we anticipated, but from the things that did, or maybe even went better than we were expecting? Yeah, it's, uh, again, I think it's uh, a function of being human. It's not until later on that we realize um, perhaps how much we enjoyed something, how good it was. Um, and some things don't seem as bad as they, they did at the time, you know? I'll give you an example. Examples are always better. One of my most challenging times as um, someone who had a formal leadership position was being the force commander during the 2003 Iraq war and having 200 people under my command. And well, I was a pilot. Uh, I had elements of two squadrons, aircrew and also another squadron uh, of engineers, the technicians who looked after the aircraft. And we flew nothing that Tom Cruise and uh, Top Gun would fly. You know, it's much more pedestrian. It was a, a large, well, original passenger jet, a big uh, jet, about the size of a 767. But we carried fuel, we carried gas. And we were an airborne tanker aircraft. We gave fuel away to fighter jets. And that was our role. We were totally unarmed, totally undefended. And we flew around in circles and people shot at us, which was quite irritating after a while, you know, but that's, <laughs> that was the job. So at the time, you know, the, well, I think I was out there for about four months in the desert in, in, in Saudi, where we're operating from. And the conditions are pretty sparse. The, the, the weather was pretty appalling from, um, the, the heat, the cold of the nights, um, sandstorms, a surprising amount of rain. And we're working 24-7. And it was, it was hard. It was tough. And at times, you know, I was exceptionally tired. And I didn't know all the answers to the challenges we faced. I didn't know what the future held. On the first night of the war, I saw 40 young men and women in aircraft. Pretty sure I wasn't going to see them all back. Mm. And that weighed heavily on me. Um, so at the time, good heavens, when I got back, I was totally drained. So looking back, I might not have seen that as one of the best experiences, but boy, did I learn a lot, you know? Um, uh, and that was through the, the opportunity to reflect. And more importantly, what can I do with that reflection? How can I use that to better lead myself, better lead others? and now share with other people so they can lead better as well. 
or at least have heart from the, uh, the, the challenges I faced if they're facing something similar in their world. And I, I would venture to guess that most of us are not facing challenges. The next time I'm thinking that my work is difficult or challenging, I got to remember that I'm not flying around in a giant unarmed aircraft being sh flying in circles being shot at. There, there is a difference there. And that uh, those experiences and that power of self-reflection comes through very strongly in the work that you've done in leading from the jump seat. And you, you have such a powerful way of, of letting the reader reflect on their own experience, their own opportunities, how they're leading others, what they're doing, both and starting with what you shared at the very beginning. How am I leading myself? Then yeah. let's get to, to leading others. So in leading from the jump seat, it's a metaphor. And as a non-aviator, let's start with what the metaphor means. What's a jump seat? What is leading from the jump seat? And then if you would get into why this book, it's, yeah. it's a, it's a fairly in the, the genre of leadership literature that's out there. There's not a lot of folks writing about this. And it's one of the reasons I think it's so powerful. What led you to write this? So jump seat and how'd we get here? Sure. So the jump seat on large, passenger jets on the flight deck where the pilots are, uh, you generally have the, the two pilot seats and then immediately behind them, you have a third seat and that's the jump seat. And the jump seat is usually empty, but appropriately qualified crew members can hitch a ride home sat in that seat. And you get a great view out the front of the aircraft. So where the, the, the book gets its title from is many years ago when I was a senior officer and senior pilot in the Royal Air Force, uh, I had the role of checking uh, a guy by the name of Callan, who'd just become a new captain. He'd been a first officer, a co-pilot for some years, very experienced, but we'd just been through six months of detailed training to convert him to, to be a captain and responsible for the whole aircraft uh, anywhere in the world. And the final part of the, the, the training was where a senior guy, in this case myself, crewed up with him and watched him as he flew the aircraft and passengers from the UK over to Washington, Dulles, and then on to San Francisco. And San Fran's a very busy airfield and Callum did a great job. And we touched down, we taxied in, the passengers got off and it was a great pleasure. I could turn to him and say, Callum, done a great job. You're fully certified now, signed up. We're stopping here the night. In the morning, you're gonna have a regular co-pilot with you. I'll be down the back with the rest of the passengers you fly us back to, to Washington Dulles. And that was a great moment, as you can imagine, because he'd worked so hard for it. The following morning, he came to me, he said, excuse me, sir. I was his senior, senior officer, so that's how he referred to me. But he said, excuse me, sir. He said, it's very busy out of here in San Fran. We don't come here often. It's rush hour. Um, can you come and sit on the jump seat to act as an extra pair of eyes, just to make sure we go the right way, we don't miss anything, and also watch out for other aircraft? I said, yes, Captain, of course. And at the time I thought, this is really courageous because he's just got rid of me. I've been his, his monkey on the back, you know? <laughs> he's just got rid of me. And yet he's come and invited me back onto that flight deck to sit on the jump seat. And that's because he was connected to, in this case, a higher purpose, which was the safety of the aeroplane and everybody on board. So I was quite happy to sit in that seat. I strapped him, taxied out. Callum didn't skip a beat. He, he, caught everything. He was great, as I knew he would be. We lined up on the runway, we thundered down the runway for takeoff, and we'd only got airborne a few moments. We were about three, 400 feet, very close to the ground, and we had what amounted to an emergency. 
and Callum was wrestling with the controls. And here's the thing, David, what I then chose to do in the next two seconds, maybe less, would dictate whether I and everyone on board, the 140 people on board, whether we would survive or not. But here's the thing, I did absolutely nothing. I sat there with my hands in my lap, perfectly calm, because I knew Callum could handle the situation. If I had any doubts, I would have had no business signing him up the day before, fully certified as a captain. What I needed to do in that moment was not to lead, I needed to become a great follower. I needed Callum mm. to feel that I had his back, as indeed mm. I did, and to stay out of the way so he could do his job. I'm talking to you now, so obviously it worked out, but you know what that made me think, and read the book, uh, everybody, if you want to find out how, how it will turn out, but, it made me think, you know what, it's inevitable at some stage we all, as you said in your introduction, hand over control, whether we're the CEO of a company, we retire, team leader, we move on, or heck, even as a parent, you know, our kids grow up, leave home and start to lead their own lives. And by the way, parenting is one of the toughest leadership jobs most of us face. Right? So, you know, the opportunity, lean from the jump seat, is the opportunity to embrace that inevitability. And... In so doing, we lift people up. We empower others. It's not about retaining or increasing our own power. We empower others, lift them up. So when the time is right, they can take the lead. But here's the thing. It's not just about when we retire and take that step back. It turns out that when we lead in that way, we create extraordinary opportunities right now in the present because of what it brings out in our people. So that's the background of leading from the jump seat. And I, I wrote the book because, well, that's the opening story, but there's so many other stories from my life where I've learned these lessons, both from aviation, there's stories from space, from companies I've worked with, all sorts. Bring it all together in ways that people can see the lessons and apply the practices in their own business, wherever they are, whatever stage they are in, uh, in work and life. And we're talking with Peter Docker, author of Leader, Leading from the Jump Seat. And if you haven't got a sense that Peter can tell a good story, well, I don't know what to do with you. The, if you love books that are that, that just that great blend of the stories that bring the principles to life and then the application and really thinking through, how do I use this? Let's get practical. You're going to love this book. Peter, you've just done a, a fantastic job. And I'd, I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into it, if that's good with you. Absolutely. Right. Let's do it. You know, in chapter three, uh, you talk about this principle, or maybe, maybe it's uh, not a principle as much as definitional, the difference between a position and a stand. And I thought there was a, such a great distinction here. I haven't seen this called out this way. So talk with us, what is the difference between a stand or a position? And why is that so important for leaders? Sure. So the, the book has quite a few what we call distinctions in language. And quite often you're not going to find these in a dictionary, but by sharing a distinction in language, it enables us to have different conversations and it enables us therefore to get different results. And what you've just mentioned is one of the early distinctions, the difference between a position and a stand. It's very easy for us to think of things that we're against. We take up a position against. And we only need to open a newspaper or look on the internet at the moment. And there's lots of people 
taking up positions against things or people. And here's the thing with a position. It can only exist if there's a counter position. If there's no counter position, then your position dissolves because there's nothing to butt up against. A stand is different. A stand is what we stand for. It's what we believe in. It's like you've got your own island and you plant your flag on that island and every ship that sails past, they can see your flag and what you stand for. And if they stand for that too, they can come and join you on your island. But what's really important about stand is if they don't believe that, they can sail on past and that is okay, right? So an example that brings this to life, and this is real, it's in the book. We, we live in this little village and there are very narrow country lanes here out in the English countryside. And there's one just leaning out of our village. There's only enough width for one car at a time. So sometimes you'll get two cars, one going in each direction, and they meet, we'd say bumper to bumper, you'd say fender to fender, right? And they meet and they stop. And immediately the drivers take up a position against the other driver. And what that looks like is, well, my journey is more important than yours. You back up to the passing place. And the other guy said, no, you're driving too fast. You, you, and what happens with positions is that we get more entrenched. And just like the cars, nothing moves. But what if one of those drivers, as soon as they see the other car, they immediately pause, reverse up to a passing place because they have a stand, a stand for being courteous on the road. The other guy... He's got no opportunity to form a position because there's no counter position. He drives on pass and everybody's happy. But the person who had the stand, that becomes strengthened. Yeah? And that's the power of a stand. It doesn't depend on anyone or anything else to exist. Now, this simple distinction, it really helps us in leading. Because if we can identify what our stands are, they will guide us during times of uncertainty and crisis, because a stand comes from those things that are deeply important to us, those non-negotiables. And we can figure out what those are through the choices that we make in life, like my choice to go to university and not be a burden on my parents financially. Well, one of my stands is not to be a burden on others and to be in a position to help others, right? That's an example of a stand, something that does not change. It's more fundamental, actually, than values. Because values can change. I hate to break it to people, but they can. You know, they're based on circumstances. Our stands do not. And when we combine our stands, they provide a reservoir of energy that we can draw on when there isn't a roadmap, when we don't know the answers to the challenges that we're facing. It gives us that handrail, that guide to help us move forward when at other times we would just not know what to do. I love the metaphor. I have driven those roads. I've had that encounter. And yes, and, and being from the States, some of those uh, English country roads, boy, if you haven't driven one of those, you get the hedgerows on either side and it really, oh yeah, <laughs> it can be fun. <laughs> so a stand, one of the elements that, that you've called out here is that a stand is an attractive force for people who have a similar approach. So as a, uh, who have similar values or, or that deeper Absolutely. conviction of this is what's important. So as a leader, your stand becomes attractive to other people who are going to make good members of your team if you're upfront about it. You don't want to hide these things. Yeah, I, that, that, that's true. Uh, absolutely true. I, I think 
um, you know, when we when we <laughs> when we know what our own stands are, then uh, and we practice them, and we practice them by turning them into commitments. You know, a, a stand can be quite static actually until we do something with it, mm. and when we put it into action, that's when it becomes a commitment. And a, a commitment is nothing to do with contracts or signatures on a page. A commitment is quite simply a promise we make to ourselves. You know, in very simple terms, you and I, David, we had this agreement to, uh, to appear on this, this podcast, you know. But unless I make a promise to myself that I have a commitment to show up on time and deliver, then no matter how many emails, exchanges we, we've had, you know, it's not going to happen. So a commitment is quite simple, which doesn't mean to say it's easy, but it's just a promise to ourselves. Now, when we link that to stands and people see our commitments in action, it forms, well, what people recognize as character. You know, who we are, what we stand for. And I, I just want to go back a little bit because this is so important. Uh, may I ask, David, you, you have family. Yes, I do. Judge you. Uh, yeah, you, you have people you care for. I, I have uh, a, a family, uh, my wife, Claire, for 34 years, and our two kids that have grown up and are leading their own lives now. About three years ago, two, three years ago, I had a phone call from my wife. And she told me in a shaky voice that she'd just been involved in a car accident. Now, I didn't know the full details of it. I was in the middle of some business calls. But I dropped everything because there was nothing that would have got in my way to driving to my wife, who's only about two miles down the road, and going to her aid. Now, think about it for a moment. I was stepping into the unknown. I'd never been in that situation before. I didn't know what I was going to find. But I moved forward without hesitation because there's this fire inside of me like there, are, like there is for, for many of us where family is really important. And so you all step into the unknown willingly. So this is what I'm talking about when we identify those non-negotiables that can turn into stands and then into commitments. It's that powerful. It's that powerful. And we identify those by looking at the choices that we've made in life. But when we've got those stands, we've got that energy, we can make those commitments, then it makes us a much better leader when we're stepping into the unknown. And you know, it goes back to where you opened was that self-leadership and, and reflecting and paying attention to yeah. the choices we make and then making the commitment. Now, when you talk about commitments in leading from the jump seat, there was a phrase that you used that, that and the metaphor that went with it that struck me. You said, uh, when if you want to run up a mountain, start at the top. And the reason that I thought about that, I, I love hiking uh, in in the States, we have these 14,000 foot mountains. I looked up the conversion, I think it's 4630 meters. So 4,650 meters, they're about that height. So, and I love hiking those mountains. I hiked up 36, some of them. What on earth are we, I think I know what you mean, but if you wanna run up a mountain, start at the top. Talking about commitments, particularly challenging commitments. Absolutely. Well, first of all, it doesn't mean you get a helicopter, right? You know, this is not about. <laughs> We're not gonna start at the top and run down. <laughs> it, it's it's a way of looking at things you know and it comes again from my experiences i love running i love mountain and hill running and uh, i've run up quite a few we, we don't have mountains quite 
the size of yours in the States, but you know, we have a few, few hills uh, here in the UK. And what I mean by standing at the top of the mountain is that before, uh, and I'll make it specific, there's Mount Snowdon in, in, in Wales, Snowdon is a mountain. And right now in this moment, I can close my eyes and I can visualize what that summit looks like. I've run up it several times. I can visualize what it looks like. I can almost feel the sting of the cold air on my skin, the freshness of the air through my nose, the horizon that I can see from that level. I can almost taste it. And it's that visceral connection to standing on top of that mountain. It's like I've already done it, you know? That's what pulls me up that mountain. And I look down the mountain from that visualization I have of standing at the top and all of the paths that I will have taken, the routes, they don't look so challenging. Compare that to standing at the bottom of the mountain, looking up, thinking, cool, that looks tough. But you know what? I'll give it my best shot. What's the energy in that by comparison? It's much lower. So this is what I mean by standing at the top of the mountain. When we're facing a challenge, particularly ones we have not taken on before, we can choose to stand at the bottom of that, that, that mountain and it will seem hugely daunting. Or we can connect, viscerally connect. That's hugely important. Get those emotions involved. Standing at the top of the mountain, what it feels like, what it tastes like, what we can see from that summit. And that's what's going to pull us up there. And you know what? I, going back to running, I've never yet failed to reach the top of a mountain that I've set up to run. So that's what I mean by standing at the top of the mountain. It's not about ignoring reality, but it's just a frame of mind. It's the picturing that what success looks like and really, as you said, emotionally, viscerally putting yourself there so that that reality pulls you forward through the challenges, the obstacles, the, totally. the work. No. And it, it, it's not about arrogance either. There, there was uh, some footage some years ago of Usain Bolt uh, just before the 100 meter final at the Olympic Games. And all the other competitors were very focused and, you know, they had their AirPods in or whatever, listening to music, getting ready for the race. But Usain was talking to the, the, uh, the officials, just chatting, perfectly relaxed. And somebody said to him afterwards, you know, well, how, how are you so relaxed? He said, oh, well, he said, I've already run the race. I've already, run, I've already won. Um, all I got to do now is well, run it. But he'd visualized crossing the line first. Yeah. Uh, it's not arrogance. It's humble confidence, actually. Uh, and that's what pulls him across the line first. Beautiful. Well, there's a, a very practical takeaway as we're thinking about leading through unknowns, new challenges, areas that you haven't start on top of the mountain. Visualize everything that that looks like, feels like, smells like, tastes like, and let that energy pull you through. All right. So, Peter, the name of the show is Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. And at least in my experience, I mean, there are a number of ways I think leaders can get discombobulated. But one of the number one reasons leaders get in trouble and abandon human-centered leadership, in my experience, is fear. And you, you've dedicated an entire chapter of Leading from the Jump Seat to dealing with fear. And so I'm curious, your perspective on fear, how you encourage leaders to confront fear. I, I know from the book, but I've got to imagine you, you have 
it's something that you've had to learn to manage and helped other leaders learn to, to work through as well. So I'd love to get your wisdom and insights on that. Absolutely. Well, thank you. <laughs> I'm shocking because I'm thinking there's so many times in my life where I felt fear big time. So but let, let's unpack fear. You know, fear arises, first of all, when we sense our life is on the line. And that, that's when fear is good. That's our friend. It, it's when we step out to the road and there's a, a vehicle that suddenly appears. We jump back. You know, it, fear saves our life. But the trouble is fear is triggered in other circumstances too. It's triggered when we sense our livelihood, our status, or our reputation is under threat. And when fear is triggered for any of those reasons, it tends not to be helpful at all. When our livelihood, status, or reputation is threatened, fear shows up as, well, it can show up as anger, or it can show up at the other extreme, a timidity. We tend to close down. We don't see the world as a place of possibility. We see it as a place of scarcity. And we start thinking about just me, rather than the people on our team or in business, the customers we serve. And that's just not sustainable. We start making choices that ultimately hurt people. Yeah. But we ourselves actually have a choice. We always have a choice. And that is to choose love. And when I talk about love in business, people get a bit jittery uh, to begin with, but that's okay. So let, let, let's dive into this, let's embrace it. What love looks like in, in the business sense is we see the world as a place of possibility and opportunity, not scarcity. Instead of closing down and, well, thinking just about ourselves, we continue to think about our people, and the customers that we serve. And unlike fear, which can generate the driver of ego, which is all about I, love generates the antidote to ego. And that's what I call humble confidence. Someone who leads with humble confidence, first of all, the confidence bit, he or she is absolutely clear on their strengths and resolute on where they're going, resolute on reaching the top of that mountain. Yeah? But equally, they're prepared to listen to their people and others involved. They have that humility. And we can only do that when we're leading from a place of love. And the thing that connects fear and love is courage. Courage cannot exist without fear. So this is not about sweeping fear under the carpet. It's about seeing fear as a warning flag, finding the courage to then choose to lead from a place of love. And that courage, where that comes from, is our stands. Those things that are so deeply important to us, our non-negotiables, that's where courage comes from. And this is why it's so important to figure out our stands, what we believe in, what are our non-negotiables, those things that are so deeply important to us, we will move forward even in the face of uncertainty, because that is the engine of humble confidence. Mm, beautiful. Well, you're in good company here. There are no nerves and none of our audience are going to have any nerves around you talking about love in a business context here. I, I, I don't shy away from it. I think it's it's vital. And the uh, and longtime listeners of the show certainly recognize the the uh, humble confidence. It's interesting. So you talk about humble confidence. Uh, on our end, we talk about confident humility. 
And well, there you, go. Yeah. you know, that's that that exactly what you're describing. And I, I just love the way that the link and for uh, our listeners, Peter actually has a, a whiteboard behind him, a, a tear sheet with uh, L for love on one side, fear on the, uh, F for fear on the other side, and then a C connecting the two. So I love yeah. the, the visual there of the bridge from fear to love is courage yeah. and that that courage comes from our stands. Yeah. May, may I just add something to this? Because I think it's really important. Um, I, I often, when I'm talking about love, fear and courage, I often link to my military experience um, because that, that tends to inoculate against people thinking that this is all warm and fluffy and whatever. No, I mentioned earlier that I saw off the first night of the Iraq war, I saw off 40 young men and women in aircraft. Pretty sure that I wouldn't see them all back. Um, they all went, went willingly. I didn't have to order anybody. Now, they were no doubt fearful for their life, their livelihood, their status and reputation. But here's where the love side came in. Just after we'd had a photograph taken of all of our people, this is something you do before you go into combat operations. I, I knew there was something I had to say. And I just let the words come out of the mouth. And I said, engineers, the guys who looked after the aircraft, you've got to make sure these aircraft are fully serviceable for every mission that we're, we're tasked with. Then I turned to the pilots and the aircrew. I said, pilots, aircrew, you've got to fly every mission that we're given because unless we don't, unless we fly every mission, we're not going to refuel those fighter jets. And if we don't refuel those fighter jets, our troops together with American and Australian troops on the ground will not get their air cover and they're going to die. And it was as simple as that. I talk about pulling the signal out of noise, you know, a noisy environment, so much going on. We need to tune into the signal. And when that signal is sourced from a place of love, that's why people chose, in this case, to put themselves in harm's way. It was for the love of the people wearing similar uniforms that they never met before. That's why they put themselves in harm's way. They may not use those words. I probably wouldn't have back then. But that was the driving force, not fear. It was love. Fear only gets the minimum. Uh, you know, when we're when we're in a place of fear, or if we're leading from a place of fear, it's only going to get the kind of the minimum effort from from people. Absolutely. That discretionary that comes from a different place. It does indeed. You know, as you've been talking about humble confidence, one of the things that one of the elements of the book that jumped out of me. We have not spoken before. I, I have not met you before. So I only know you by reputation, by description, uh, all the accolades in your, your professional career and, and military leadership. And throughout the book, you identify these moments where you talk about imposter syndrome and you talk about self-doubt. And it's in context that I would imagine most of us would go, wait a minute, not Peter. Peter can't be experiencing that in those moments. And so I appreciated the vulnerability of you sharing those moments. And I'm curious, uh, as you reflect again on your career and on those moments of where you felt imposter syndrome, worked through them from love to get to the to, to overcome the fear and so forth, what, what has that taught you? What have you learned from that? Uh, or that, or maybe from a perspective of if someone's listening today and feeling some of that self-doubt and I don't know if I really belong here or have the worth to do whatever it is that's needed. 
what might help them work through that? Mm. Well, I, I think I think it actually links to the love fear conversation. Where we're feeling this imposter syndrome, where is it coming from? Is it coming from a place of ego where, you know, we're faking it until we make it, that old adage, you know, where, yeah, I can do this. And yeah, that's fine. But actually a healthy imposter syndrome is where you're so in service of your people, you just don't want to let them down. And that comes from a place of love. And I think when that's the context for your imposter syndrome, then it's good. Because when you're experiencing imposter syndrome in that context, it means that you're pushing yourself beyond your comfort zone. And that in itself is about leadership, stepping into that unknown again. So I think imposter syndrome, we, we need, if we're feeling it, let's take a deep look at where that's coming from. Is it coming from a place of fear? You know, my reputation, I can't screw up here. Or is it coming from a place of love? I really want to serve my people. I don't want to let them down. Hmm. Entirely different contexts. And if we're sourcing ourselves from the love context, we can work through imposter syndrome. It can be a good thing because it keeps us humble. It helps us move forward that humble confidence that's so important. It helps us rather than focusing on being the person who has the answers, it enables us to be the person that focuses on asking the important questions. Mm, I want to get into that asking of the important questions in just a moment. But before we do, I want to make sure that we give you a chance to tell us where can we connect with you, uh, learn more about the book, find the book. Uh, this is definitely a resource that I know many people are going to want to take advantage of. Well, thanks, David. Uh, you can find me, uh, my website, leadingfromthejumpseats.com. Uh, the book as well is available in paperback, hardback, audiobook, and ebook uh, in all the usual places, Amazon, and also available in China where uh, you can't get Audible and other things. You can get Lean from the Jump Seat there. So in all those usual places and more. So yes, uh, and there's resources on the website too. We're building courses around uh, Lean from the Jump Seat to, uh, to teach people even when I'm not there at the front of the room. So uh, yeah there's more on its way. Such a fantastic resource. And I, I think I mentioned if I didn't already, each chapter ends with application questions for you to really contemplate how are you leading yourself, developing your own leadership, leading your team, and then that the jump seat aspect of it, where you're really turning over that leadership and responsibility to other people. And so some great practical tools. And on that note, I want to dive into a few of those here. As you were just getting into talking with us, Peter, about asking good questions and not having all the answers. And all this under the umbrella in the book, you talk about adaptive challenges need adaptive solutions. And you have just a, a, not a laundry list, but it is quite a list of really good tools and practices for leaders to be using to help with this. So I'm gonna turn it over to you under that umbrella, adaptive challenges need adaptive solutions, then maybe we can draw out some of these. Absolutely. Well, let's go to the core of this, which is a challenge I think all of us have faced. Our cultures, all cultures, reward us for knowing the answer. 
you know, when we're at school, we put our hand up, we get acknowledgement from the teacher. We then are encouraged to focus more on those subjects where we do know the answer. Then we might go to college and learn more about that subject. So we know more of the answers. And then we go into the workplace. We're hired because we know the answers. Yeah. So that's how we are drilled, really. And then if we're really good at our job, we get rewarded by being promoted. And eventually we'll be promoted into a position where we no longer are employed because we know the answers. You know, we're no longer doing the computer programming if we're the programmer. All of a sudden we're looking after people who are doing the programming and we get no training for that. And so what do we do? Fear kicks in a little bit. And when a challenge comes up, we scrabble around because we want to be the one who knows the answer. We're the boss after all. But if we've always got to be the one who knows the answer, we become the constriction in the pipe of progress. Our team will only progress as quickly as our own knowledge allows. So if we want to take the, uh, the, uh, the huge benefits of leading from the jump seat, we need to learn and become comfortable leading when we don't know the answer. And this is where adaptive challenges come in. Because you see, there are, th this comes from Heifetz, Ronald Heifetz back in the 80s. I've just adapted it. There are, there are two types of, of things we face in life. There's a problem and there's a challenge, a technical problem and an adaptive challenge. A technical problem is where we, we know what the problem is. We've probably come across it before. We know the solution and we direct people to, to sort it out. We do this every, well, in our everyday lives. You know, if you get a, a, a puncture in your tire, a flat, you'll take it to a tire shop. You, you can see the nail in the tire. You can see the technical problem and you ask them to fix it. Yeah, you delegate. But sometimes there are adaptive challenges mixed in as well. An adaptive challenge, you may not have come across it before, let alone knowing the solution. You know, let's say that puncture was caused at 80 miles an hour on the highway and you were scaring out your skin. The adaptive challenge is how do I become confident again driving at speed on the highway? This is a real challenge. But quite often what we'll do is we'll, we'll try and address an adaptive challenge with a technical fix. We'll say, oh, just get over it. You'll be fine. Get back on that horse again, off you go. But that's not gonna help that person, okay? So at a business level with adaptive challenges, first of all, our job is to recognize it's an adaptive challenge, i.e. it's one we haven't come across before, we don't have the answer. And as the, the person in charge, the person who's leading, put the hand up and say, look, I don't know the answer here, but let me tell you why we've got to figure it out. Let me paint the picture of what it looks like at the top of the mountain. When we get there, when we solve this, and then holding the space where we can then tap into the collective genius of our team, because that's what it is. It's a collective genius. And everyone then can start to chip in pieces of what will ultimately become the solution as we learn our way through. But you see, we can never lead adaptive challenges if we've always got to be the person who has the answer. It just doesn't work. We've got to have the humble confidence, the courage of our stands, being sourced from love to be able to put our hand up and create the space instead where our people can learn our way through. And as we hold that space, you have some very practical ways for leaders to do that in terms of the questions you ask. You know, uh, one of your suggestions is 
rather than asking, you know, what's wrong with the solution? What you say, what's missing? Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm curious if you have some other suggestions uh, in meetings or, or different circumstances of how to hold that space and how to help draw out others thinking and ideas and solutions rather than shutting down the conversation with our own. I love it. You know, it's funny, isn't it? How a simple switch in a word can shift the whole context of a situation. You know, what's missing instead of what's wrong. That, that's a great one. Here's another one. We've all been in a situation where our people come up with a complaint. They don't like something. And many of us, and I've been there too, you know, this is not about being perfect. I'm far from perfect. You try and sweep that complaint under the carpet, you know, or push it away or ignore it. Here's the opportunity. Next time someone brings a complaint in whatever form, ask questions to find the underlying commitment. Behind every complaint is a commitment. I don't think this is in the book, actually. It's something I missed out, perhaps. But yeah. Bonus material. <laughs> New material. You hear it here first. Behind every complaint is a commitment. Think about it. If someone has had the courage to put their hand up and go to their boss or make a phone call to complain, it's because of something they feel strongly about. Yeah. And sometimes that might come forward as a position. Remember what we we're talking about earlier, positions and stand. It's a position against something. You're not doing, you know, you know, we don't know what's going on. Okay. You don't tell us what's happening. The opportunity is to find the underlying commitment. And uh, well, it links back to positions and stands, actually. It's like if you think of position and stand like a coin, on one side is a position, turn that coin over, and you're going to find the stand. The position is you don't communicate enough. The stand is. I believe we should communicate freely and everybody should be aligned so as we can work powerfully together. Yeah. Now, when we find the underlying commitment to a complaint, we can use the original energy that came with that commitment in a positive way, uh, sorry, came with that complaint in a positive way through identifying that commitment. So there's the top tip. Next time someone complains, dig deeper, find the underlying stand, the underlying commitment, and work with that, that energy it provides. Find the commitment in the complaint. It, a couple of things are striking me, Peter, as you're sharing that. One is uh, I'm thinking back in my career when I was fired up, I, was, I had quite a complaint. I felt we were out of integrity as an organization. And the CEO, who I had taken it all the way to the CEO, he did that. And he felt he was justified in the decision he'd made, and I did not. And he kept digging until he found what my conviction, what my commitment was, yeah. where I was feeling personally out of integrity. And he honored it and said, all right, and what can we do given this outcome? What can we do that's going to help you to feel okay with the outcome? And how did that make you feel, that conversation? Oh, I felt heard. And, yeah. and we were able to resolve it with a very simple thing. I said, I just want to make this one sentence addition to the introduction material and the entire thing is on a different footing and you'll get what you need and my integrity is in place and we're good to go yeah you, it was and this actually links to to another important thing it, when people make mistakes you know which 
there's often similar sort of energy when people complain. When someone makes a mistake, um, it's very easy to crush that person. And you, it's what I call prick the balloon of confidence, you know? And that can take months, if not longer, to, to recover that situation. And so uh, there, there's a lot of material in the book around handling mistakes. And I guess I'd summarize it by saying, when someone makes a mistake, see it as, a as an opportunity to spiral up. How can I spiral up rather than creating that spiral down? Yeah. And there are a few examples in the book where I've made mistakes and where I've been present when other people have been making mistakes, where actually flying airplanes, you know, so there's quite a lot on the line there <laughs> and how to deal with it. Because in those moments, it's so tempting to step back in and take control. Yeah. And you might not have to be flying airplanes, but you could be running your own business or something that has been built up over decades. And so the pressure to take back control when someone is making a mistake or looks as if they might make a mistake is so, so tempting. And if we do that, we prick the balloon of confidence. And then going back to the aircraft metaphor, what we end up with is just one captain who can only fly one place in the world, in the world at the time, rather than what you want, which is a whole load of captains who can fly lots of airplanes around the world for you at the same time. Yeah. So see it as an opportunity to spiral up, not spiral down. All right. So gosh, there's so much here. So quickly, because we are about out of time. The second part that struck me in terms of, of the conversation there that you were having uh, with our bonus material is that that also was sourcing from a place of love that from fear to because as somebody is delivering a complaint to you, particularly if you seem to be the source, the center of it, it is easy in our humanity to fire up our amygdala and react with fear because we feel attacked okay. to have yeah. the courage and have a stand and a commitment to finding the commitment in the complaint strikes me that's another application of from fear to courage to love and then as you're talking about and i'd like to give you the last word on this peter because i i can't think of a more powerful way to be the leader you want your boss to be than to help people spiral up than to spiral down so if you had to give us one suggestion to help people spiral up when mistakes happen what might that be? What's our, our final takeaway here? You've got so many good things for us. I encourage you to get the book, but I want to give you the last word, Peter. How can we help people spiral up? There's a whole list of ways you can help people spiral up in the book, as you know, David. Um, the first comes back to source yourself from a place of love. You know, we all make mistakes. We all do. But you know what? Those point moments, those single data points, that's not what's important. What's important is intention and trend. This applies to us as much as it does to someone on our team who makes a mistake. Where's their intention? Where they source themselves from? Is it coming from a place of fear or is it coming from a place of love? But also, what is the overall trend of their actions? Is that heading in the right direction? Those are the two most important things to, to, to think about. And I'll add a bonus, which is when you do have to intervene, when the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, as Spock would say, you know, do the minimum amount you absolutely have to on that intervention. And there's a great story in my book 
to illustrate that. And I love that cliffhanger. If you haven't already like parked your car, stopped your workout and ordered Peter's book, you're going to want to do that. Peter, thank you so much for sharing these principles and wisdom from, you know, leading from the jump seat with us. And thank you for taking the time and being a guest on Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. We so appreciate you. David, it's been wonderful. Thank you for your brilliant questions. I love the conversation. As did I, as did I. Until next time, we'll see you for our next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.